0: All right, welcome all to the class. A little bit late getting started, some technical difficulties. Um, welcome back from the break. Um, we we had planned to go and do lots of things, and um, just like God meeting Balaam on the road and telling him to stop, God blew up our transmission, and so uh, we had to <laughs> come back home and actually rest for a week instead of oh, doing oh, all this stuff so we actually really feel very blessed by that even though it's never fun to say goodbye to a vehicle um, and uh, i'm actually prepared very well prepared for today i have something like 23 slides and your handouts are actual fill-in-the-blank handouts not just like bleh, whatever i had prepared to to speak so um, and today is a really exciting topic uh, this is one that um, if you're in student ministry or if you just hang out with people that are that are educated uh that are non-christians this is going to be a really powerful one you're going to be able to memorize it you're going to to use it and people are going to be like wow that's amazing that proves god so pay attention and this is going to be a lot of fun let's just uh, pray before we get going lord jesus i just thank you so much for your blessing over our lives, thank you for the testimonies we've had this morning of um, you revealing yourself to people and people accepting you, coming to faith. Mm-hmm. I just pray, Lord, that you continue to enable us to use our minds to worship you, to love you, and to bring people to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, the um, first thing I need to say is that I've been doing it all wrong. Um, <laughs> so, in conversation with somebody last week, they said, well, can you talked about the, more, the, the problem of uh, suffering and stuff like that. But how does that relate to, um, anyways, the, the point of how the book is written, and this is classical apologetics, is to start with the big picture. There is a God, all right? So that's today. Week five is supposed to be, supposed to be week one, okay? So first of all, we, we prove that there is a God. Secondly, we prove he is a personal and powerful God. We'll actually prove that today as well. But we'll also talk about it a lot next week. And then we talk about he's good. So that's the moral argument. And then the, um, the pushback to that is the problem of pain and also the problems for the Old Testament. Then we talk about his name is Jesus. and then, So we talk about the New Testament proofs and, and the proof for the, the Bible and things like this. And then finally, we can't really read that. We, we ask people to actually believe in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, kind of the last step. Uh, and so the last chapter in the book is about uh, why Jesus is the only way to God. So... I've been doing it kind of out of order because I felt like I wanted to section off the philosophy and the science and the history. Um, Next time I'm going to do it this way because it, when you're wrestling through a hard thing like the moral argument, it's nice to know why you're doing it. And so when it's more in order like this, it's like, okay, we've already proven that there is a God. This is proving that he is a moral God. Um, So anyways, I hope that is helpful in helping you understand where we are. Um, Today we're going to be talking about the Big Bang. And so that... Right away brings in the question, well, hold on, I thought the world was created 6,000 years ago, right? And that, uh, you know, obviously I get a, is that a curious look. Um, most, a, a lot of Christians read the Bible and say it was created in six days. If you add up the genealogies, literally how it's written on the page, creation happened somewhere around 4,000 B.C., And so this is what we call young earth creationism, and um, then there's other Christians that see it as the earth is very old, some of them accept evolution, some of them don't. And so we're going to talk about this in two weeks, but I'm actually doing fresh research because, fresh for me, because um, I kind of left this, uh, um, I haven't looked at this recently. Um, even as I talk about this, I get a little bit nervous because I have personal baggage with this. Um, and so I'm kind of trying to overcome that. You can pray for me if you like. Um, but whether you are young Earth or old Earth creationist, you can use the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. Because if you're young Earth, what you can say is... There, there's a great comic, and I, I wanted to get it for you guys, but I couldn't find it. But uh, a bunch of uh, atheistic, naturalistic scientists came to God... I don't want to just say a bunch of atheists because it's not true that all atheists are good scientists. Um, but a bunch of atheistic, naturalistic scientists come to God and say, God, we don't need you anymore. And God says, uh, well, prove it. And they say, well, we can create human life. I say, okay, great. Let's have a contest. You create human life. And so all the atheists gather around this clump of dirt, and they're about to try and, and create life, which already is a big problem. And God yells down from heaven, hey, get your own dirt. And so... The issue of the Big Bang is to say, that's fine, you can talk about evolution happening, uh, is it 400,000, uh, 400 million years ago maybe? But 14 billion years ago, if we're just talking about evolution, naturalistic speaking, a miracle happened. The, the universe came into existence and without that you don't have the potential to create. Um, Uh, Life from evolution and so it's perfectly legitimate to say I don't agree with your views, but on naturalism This doesn't make sense According to your your own views There's there's huge problems. There's huge gaps in fact there are Oh, I didn't put it up here. Why would I not do that? Um, There are at least seven major hurdles that naturalism has to get through to get to evolution. Uh, The Big Bang, creation of everything out of nothing, the fine-tuning of the argument is going to be next week, um, that the initial conditions were incredibly fine-tuned for life. Uh, Then the Goldilocks factors, they're talking now about something like 60 factors for a habitable planet that all need to be perfectly aligned for, and and it's very unusual the way that our our planet is. And then uh, life out of non-life, somehow sand turned into bugs this is a big jump and we can't figure out how that happened. We can't create it in laboratories yet. Um, then diversity of species that somehow these all diversified. They're talking about as many as one new species per day for millions of years. How did this happen so quickly? And they've now done studies and said this isn't evolution doesn't happen this quickly. We need trillions of years for that sort of diversity we have. We only have millions. Um, and then we have uh, irreducible complexity that certain features are irreducibly complex, like a mouse trap. A mouse trap doesn't make sense. You can't evolve that. It, it comes as a package. Um, and some other steps that I can't think off the top of my head because I don't have the outline here. But we'll talk about those next week. We will not have time to get through all of them, but I'll kind of give you a teaser of some of the issues that are out there um, that are not arising from Christians opposing evolution. These are, as the evolutionists, you know, naturalists are studying it, they're saying, this, how could this happen? which is why aliens is becoming a va- valid, legitimate scientific theory. Thank you. <laughs>
1: Thank
0: aliens you. did it. It's not crazy. Know. Well, I agree. Amen. His name is Jesus, <laughs> and he seeded life on this planet. Uh, so we'll talk about that next week. But even cute. if you're a young Earth creationist, you can, you can use the Big Bang, because on naturalism, uh, you, you can't just talk about evolution. You need to talk about where that stuff came from, mm-hmm. and we need to talk about the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. And of course, on on Old Earth, uh, if you're an Old Earth creationist, it works perfectly. So, um, I got you to read two chapters, and the first one was The Argument from Contingency. And how many of you guys like that chapter? About uh, Anselm, was it Anselm?
1: Chapter 4, yeah. Oh, I like that
0: chapter. You like that chapter? Good. So we're going to mention it, but we're not going to spend tons of time on it, because I want to spend most of our time on the science, because that's really what what gets people's attention. People don't care about philosophy these days, unfortunately. So this is a very good, sophisticated philosophical argument that has been around for a long time, that uh, basically disproves naturalism, or atheistic naturalism. So point one, everything that exists has an explanation of its existence. And William Lane Craig gives a great example, if you're walking in the bush, you see a ball, and you say to your traveling companion, hey, why is this here? Mm-hmm. He, he wouldn't say, oh, it has no explanation of its existence. Mm-hmm. If he did, you'd say, well, come on. Like, you don't want me to look at this or, or you want to just keep going. Like, everything has an explanation of its existence. And the size of the ball doesn't matter if it's the size of, uh, of um, New York, if it's the size of our planet, if it's the size of our galaxy. Everything needs to have an explanation of its existence. Um, if the explanation has a if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. And he explains why it can not be other things. And then the universe exists. The universe has an explanation of its existence because everything has an explanation. Therefore, the explanation of the universe's existence is God. So it's actually fairly easy to understand as well when you just see it like that. Everything needs to have an explanation. If, if, if you just say it just exists and there's no explanation, that's an insufficient stopping point. Uh, things need to have reasons for why they exist. Um, the big issue, as I've heard William Lane Craig use this in debates with atheists, is that just is naturalism. Naturalism is to say the natural world exists and it has no explanation. No explanation is possible. No explanation is necessary. It just is. Uh, and so that that kind of becomes a stopping point uh if you're talking with a hardened atheist, is just, well, I just believe the na- natural world exists and there's no explanation for it. Um, <clears throat> great, expi- great argument, though, and we're going to come back to this uh, throughout as we talk about the, cl- uh, the next chapter. Yes? Is
1: there more than just the
0: tune on that slide? Uh, nature really exists. Nothing else exists. And there is no explanation possible or necessary. Okay. Sorry about that. Nature really exists, nothing else exists, and no explanation is necessary or possible. So let's move on to talk about the Kalam cosmological argument. As William Lane Craig mentioned, this is actually an argument developed in the Middle Ages by a Muslim scholar, um, because Muslims have the same issue that Christians do, mm-hmm. um, that, we be- that they believe that, the Earth was, that everything was created by God, that the universe is not eternal. So the argument goes, Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe begins to began to exist. Therefore the universe had a cause. It's great because it's very simple and all none of the premises are these crazy outlandish philosophical statements. Everything that comes that begins to exist has a cause. If and you can illustrate that by, you know, a bicycle, somebody made the bicycle. There's a tree, it was caused by you know seeds and, and, and water and things like this. Babies, you know, there was a cause. Everything has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe had a cause. So, William Lane Craig offers basically one argument for this, is that it's self-evident. Everybody sees it, everybody knows it. Things that come into being have causes. And he said... uh, saying that things come into being uncaused out of nothing is worse than magic because at least the magician has a hat and he has a rabbit. <laughs> yeah. But if things just pop into being uncaused out of nothing, it's, it's worse than magic. It's just, it's ridiculous. And it's a science stopper because if something happens, you don't just say, well, it just happened and there's no cause. The whole enterprise of science is saying what caused it? Why is it there? And so this is a very strong... Um, this is a very strong premise of the argument that things that come into being have a cause. Yes?
1: I particularly like the way that he argued that... Uh, he, he sort of unpacked the idea that if the universe simply, boom, you know, came out of nothing, boom, no, something out of nothing, that why should it be a universe? Why should yeah. it be a bicycle? Mm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> why should it be... Why, why is nothing selective for universes, you know, and that really struck me as, oh yeah, why does the something out of nothing need to be a universe, you know, why isn't it, you know, potatoes, and so that's a ridiculous idea that it's really right. (laughs)
0: And, And the atheist pushback to that would be, well, it's different for universes. Yeah. Universes pop into being out of nothing, uncaused, mm-hmm. but within the universe, things don't pop into being uncaused, out of nothing, and they'll come to this back to this again and again to say, well, it's different for universes, it's different for universes, but the big issue is, if universes don't follow the laws that we've discovered within universes, what laws do they follow? The laws that you pull out of your hat? Like, mm-hmm. you know... So this is where the, the Christian on, on, in this topic is going to be like, let's just follow the science and go where it goes. And the, the atheistic naturalist is going to be saying, let's just create, let, let's just say, let's hypothesize that outside of the universe, there's these crazy laws that we haven't seen happening within the universe. And so that's where this, the, the Christian in this debate is just going to be saying, we just believe that the same sorts of laws, I mean, certainly the laws of physics, certain, certain things might be different, but things don't just pop into being uncaused out of nothing, either here or you know, out in the multiverse or, or wherever. There needs to be a cause for these things. So the immediate pushback to that is going to be, well, what caused God? Right? How many have heard this question? Who caused God? Yeah. So I taught at a summer camp this summer, and a student came up to me afterwards, this really yeah. little cute guy, and he was like, okay, so, so God is Jesus' dad. Who is God's dad? And kind of asking this straightforward question. The reason this question comes up is because premise one is so true. It's so ingrained in us. We know that things that exist, that come into being, have a cause. There is causality. And so you look at God and you say, well, where did he come from? And this is actually um, how many of you have heard Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion? Very famous book uh, published about 10 years ago now. And one of his central arguments of the book is that. Using God to explain something is invalid because immediately we have to ask, where did God come from? And this, for him, invalidates the argument. Well, this is not a valid argument because God did not come into being. He is an eternal being. This is what Christians have always believed. This is what uh, even non-Christians have believed, is that God is an eternal being. And you need to have something that is eternal. So either God is eternal or, or matter is eternal. Because otherwise what you have is an infinite regress. You have a result, and you explain that, okay, what caused that? Well, this, the cause caused it. What caused the cause? Well, the cause of the cause caused this cause. What caused this cause of the cause? The cause of the cause of the cause caused that one. And the cause of the cause of the cause caused that one. All the way back to eternity, and it's called an infinite regress because it doesn't make sense. You need to have some sort of a starting point to say there's something that doesn't move that caused all the other things. And this is what the ancient philosophers would call or Aristotle would have called the first cause or the uncaused cause or the unmoved mover. There's something that's eternal that causes everything else, okay? Otherwise, we have an infinite regress, which is absurd, which doesn't make sense. And this is, again, where, um, unfortunately, some of this debate is a little bit philosophically um, not in tune with some of these issues. We need to have a first cause, and the two options for a first cause, basically, if we're talking about atheism versus, versus theism, either matter or mind is the first cause. And we're going to come back to this at the end of our discussion. But either matter is eternal, it was never cause, it, it is stable, it's, it's eternal, it's unchanging, and matter brought everything into existence, or mind, there is a personal God who is intelligent, who is able to bring things into existence. So these are basically our two options for the first cause. Uh, There's other things you can think of, things like abstract objects, uh, things like uh, universal principles. They don't work because they can't actually do anything. Uh, The number three never did anything, right? Uh, So the only things that that I can imagine our mind or matter, that could, that could be the first cause. Uh, the, second, the second objection is that, what um, will sometimes come up in this discussion is subatomic particles. And this is where I need to confess that I'm going to share some information that I have, I, like I don't have a degree in any of this stuff, okay? So some of these points I'm going to be like, people say this and the other people say this and, and I don't know what's going on, okay? Uh, so subatomic particles, apparently in a vacuum state, uh, there is. It's possible for subatomic particles—that's a particle that's smaller than an atom—to pop into existence and then pop out of existence. Uh, and so atheists will say, "Well, look—if if we look in a microscope at very—or sm- I don't even know if you could see this—but at a very small level, things are popping in and out of existence." And the pushback to that is to say, this, this quote-unquote vacuum is not nothingness. This is an energy field with defined laws of physics applied to it and what's actually happening is a demonstration of uh, what Einstein developed the E equals MC squared that matter can convert into energy energy can convert into matter and so energy is popping into matter and then popping back into energy at a very very small scale for a very short amount of time but that in no way explains how the universe came into being as we're going to talk about it is matter energy time and space came into being So this is not a good illustration. Um, So that's it for premise one. Are there any other, is there any other discussion about premise one? I think that it's really important
1: to that that is made clear that a vacuum is not nothing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That uh, because that's the popular idea that Mm -hmm. space is a vacuum. There's nothing there, you know, and um, it, the, that idea is very entrenched, and just being able to go you know to lay that out and say actually no, you know no such thing as a vacuum um, and uh, and it, it, that we really are talking about something different yeah. nothingness becoming somethingness that's not you know science we don't have any way of even producing that condition to test it you yeah
0: know, it's and and there are, um, like he, William Lane Craig talks more about the, in the book as well, and I've heard him in a lot of debates talking, about, talking with atheists that will say things like nothingness created this, or nothingness um, did this. Or, or, and nothingness, And it's like this idea of like, when they're using it, it's as though they're talking about something because it has properties, it's able to create things, it's sometimes even able to think almost the way that they're talking about it. But nothingness is the negation of all things. It is no matter, it is no, and, and if we're using the Big Bang as a qualification of, of what nothingness is, it's no matter, no space, no energy, no time. Nothing. And, and this is what science says created everything, or everything came out of nothingness. No matter, no space, no energy, no time. And so it's not as though there was this, you know, energy field that was controlled by by, um, the the laws of physics, and that created the universe. They're not looking behind the universe and seeing this. They're seeing nothingness behind the universe. So that's a very great, that's a very helpful clarification. Um, So premise two of our argument is that the universe began to exist. Whatever begins to exist has a cause, and the universe began to exist. So this is a very ancient debate Between the Jewish tradition and the Greek tradition. So, uh, you know, the Jewish tradition going back to Moses, you know, potentially 4,000 years old or so, but certainly coming on the international scene about 250,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, sorry. Um, A few zeros misplaced there. Um, And the Jews believe that God is eternal and that the universe came into being, whereas the Greeks. Aristotle, uh, Plato, and uh, Socrates and all their disciples thought that the universe was eternal. God might be co-eternal with the universe, but God reordered the, the universe, the matter, the space, the stuff. But he didn't create it because the universe is eternal. Which is important because if things aren't eternal, then they need to have a cause. If they need to have a cause of a cause, then we go back to eternity. And this is something where Christians and and Muslims and Jews have received a lot of of pressure and and a lot of, throughout the years, this has been one of those issues, kind of like evolution today, where it's been kind of like, you know what, you guys are kind of stupid because you believe this. Um, And there have been apologists throughout the years that have said, well, okay, maybe the the universe is eternal, but, you know, really Genesis 1 says this and kind of twists things around. Um, Thomas Aquinas had a way of expressing that the universe is eternal, but... Um, it, it, it looks like it's, it's not eternal. Um, why do people care so much about the universe being eternal? Because of an infinite regress. But also, recently speaking, the reason that it was so important to think of an eternal universe and why this is a huge battleground today is, well, why don't you answer that question? Why, why do people care so much about an eternal universe? Because then we'll have to grapple with. Because people feel the force of this argument, even though they might not have seen the Kalam cosmological argument, they say, if the universe came into being, it must be caused. Things that come into being are caused by something. And the only candidate that anybody can think of is God. And so pretty quickly, when you say, well, the universe is not eternal, it's like, well, that is pretty strong evidence for God. I kind of mentioned this before, that... um, a great that the formula for atheism is infinite time plus infinite ch- chance, which is what we would call chaos. Um, kind of the, creates this infinite sea, and here and there there'll be little blips of order. Infinite time, infinite chance, aka chaos, creates little tiny blips of of order here and there. But fundamentally, at the bottom, it's chaos. There's infinite randomness and infinite time. So the and, and this is when evolution came on the scene. It was seen as a very viable theory because we have infinite time and infinite chance for evolution to happen. And so if it can happen, it almost certainly will happen at some point, somewhere in the universe. The more that we study it, and this is going to be for next week, I guess, but the more that we study it, the more we realize, no, there's not infinite chance. There's order. There's, we can see the order in the universe. There's order in our ecosystems. There's order in our cells. There's order in the cosmic Uh, seen. There's subatomic order. There's order everywhere. And so the the possibility of chance gets pushed, pushed, pushed down, down, down. I don't know why I have this for today. This should be for next week. Um, But the point being that, uh, the point for today is that there's not infinite time. There's not infinite time to do this thing. Um, The universe began to exist. I wonder if there's a way to mute. Would that be good? Would that be possible? Um, All right, I guess we'll just leave that slide up. That's not the slide. I love that idea
1: that if there has been infinite time, it being an infinite universe, then everything that they say will eventually happen to our universe should already have happened because there's been an infinite amount of time to happen. So, why
0: hasn't it happened? Again, back to that wonderful
1: concept that that if the universe is infinite and you can never get to today you can't get
0: here you know cannot. Kind of, you know. so you're going to the next point which is oh, excellent <laughs> that, that is totally fine you guys are right on track so historically <laughs>
1: way to go mary <laughs>
0: historically the existence of the universe or, or the the statement that the universe is not eternal the universe began to exist has been proved philosophically things like an actual infinite number of things cannot exist or you cannot get here from walking through an eternity of things infinite infinity works great on paper you can actually i learned a whole bunch of stuff about this you can there's actually a whole field of study talking about infinite numbers and there's like infinite infinity in this sense infinity in this sense i kind of forget already what they are but there's this whole way of talking about doing math with infinity but it doesn't translate into the real world you can't actually um, multiply an infinity of things in the real world or walk through an infinity of things in the real world. It only works on paper. Uh, and so I, I said you can read all that in your book. That's, that's the Hilbert's Hotel thing. Yeah. Um, it, again, it's, it's, it's really a little bit difficult, uh, philosophy, a bunch of math. Um, and also, and, and so it's difficult. But also, it's not totally necessary anymore because we have scientific proof that the universe began to exist, a.k.a. the Big Bang. So, historically, premise 2 has been proven through philosophy, through math, through other means, and now we have empirical proof that the universe began to exist. And this is why the Big Bang is such a big deal. Because for at least a thousand years, but even before that, there's been this huge debate raging and it's been one of the central questions of the theism debate. Is the universe eternal? And now we have proof. We have proof that the universe is not eternal. And so this right away brings huge precedent to or huge credence to this, um, this theory or this, uh, discuss, oh, man, this argument. That's what I'm looking for. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. So let's talk about uh, some of the... Proofs for uh, the Big Bang or for the beginning of the universe. So, the first proof uh, I actually stumbled on years ago in high school in my chemistry class, and um, they, they explained to me the first two laws of thermodynamics. I never really understood the third one, but the first two laws everybody just about understands. What are the first two laws of thermodynamics? Does anybody know them off the top of their head?
1: Yeah, I'm just going to read that this morning. Entropy. That's
0: that's the right word. So, Energy is neither created nor destroyed. It only changes forms. Uh, When you burn your firewood, you're not burning it up so to speak. It's just changing forms. There's a chemical reaction going on which releases energy but the the carbon is combining with oxygen to create water and carbon dioxide and the, the fuel is still there. It's just changed forms. And now there's heat that has been released. And you can't get that heat back. That heat just, it just goes. It dissipates into the, the atmosphere. And so that energy leaves. I mean, I mean it's still there. Mm-hmm. The, the universe is warmer because you lit that fire. But by such a tiny degree that it's basically lost. Mm-hmm. So it's similar to... You guys ever played with one of these? Yeah. yeah. These things are so cool. So, um, you know, you have this sand falling down and there's energy, there's kinetic energy um, in this thing because gravity is pulling the sand down. So there's able to be motion within this little bobber. Um, but you'll notice that pretty soon all the energy stops because once gravity has pulled everything down there's, there's no further, possi- it's reached equilibrium, it's stable. And so there's no possibility of it to continue to move unless I inject energy into it by turning it then, it, then the energy can start again. So the reason that we don't see, that we see continual cycles of life in our, anybody want to play with this? <laughs> the reason that we see continual cycles of life in our, in, on our world, is because we have energy being injected into it. From where? From the sun. If there was no sun, there would be no photosynthesis, water would not evaporate, the water would just go down to the oceans and blah, it would sit there the the oceans wouldn't even you know move around like they do they would just die um bec- we need that energy being fed into the system from the sun otherwise there there would be nothing um but that energy itself the energy in the universe the universe is a closed system there's no energy being injected from somewhere else there've been attempts and theories to say that there's energy coming in through black holes different things like this it's never been discovered that it's a closed system as far as we know And once that energy burns down, there will be nothing left. And this is what's called heat death. That at the end of, you know, eventually, and we've talked about this in in the moral argument, eventually, all the suns will use up their energy, all the planets will stop spinning, and everything will just reach a state of equilibrium, which is basically death and motionlessness. So either it will expand infinitely, uh, and just kind of fling out into infinite space, or else um, the gravitational force will overcome the, the, um, the force of it flying apart, which is called momentum, and it will crunch back into a, a ball and, and destroy that way. That's one option, but uh, they've, seen his, they've seen scientifically that it's not going to do the big crunch, it's just going to keep flying out because it's accelerating mm-hmm. as it goes out. Um, sorry, I'm jumping ahead now to the expansion of the universe, but Um, Heat death is a natural consequence of the laws of thermodynamics, or entropy. The second consequence is that there must have been an absolute beginning. Um, If entropy, this is an incorrect way of saying it, but if the the fuel has been burning up, the entropy has been growing throughout the course of, of the universe, there must have been a beginning. It must have come from somewhere. The universe is not stable. It couldn't exist eternally because it's, quote-unquote, burning up. They didn't understand this. You know, Aristotle didn't understand this. Plato didn't understand this because they just saw cycles. And most cultures in the world, most religions talk about cycles because that's what you see. And the Jewish religion comes on the scene and says, no, time is linear. There is no cycle. It starts, it stops, which is a, a very foreign concept to a lot of cultures. But it's the right one, you know, which is another hint that it's like, Oh, I wonder if, if maybe uh, an alien injected some information here. So, um, yeah. So there must be a, a first co- or there must be a beginning when the low entropy state uh, uh, started, and this was something actually uh, just a personal little story. My first attempt at, at really being a missionary in high school. Uh, my science project for that chemistry class. I had a um, Man, I am just, I can't think of any of my words here today. I had i um, I'm too rested. That's my problem. I had a chainsaw. And I was trying to demonstrate on the board. Okay, so we have chemical energy, and I, I inject kinetic energy like this, and the chemi- chemical energy produces um, kinetic energy, which produces electrical energy, which produces a spark, which perpetuates the cycle, and on and on. I had all these forms of energy that were being created and that were creating cycles. And the point of, the, of it was, and then the, the bell rang, and everybody left, and I was like... <sighs> <laughs> the point is <laughs> that um, the universe must have had a beginning, and if it had a beginning, then, then God must have caused it. And this was the point I was trying to make to class, and nobody got it. Uh, but I tried, right? So before I even knew anything, I mean, 10, 15 years before I even saw the cosmological argument, this was apparent to me just from the laws of thermodynamics, And at the beginning of the 19th century, I don't know exactly when these laws were discovered, sometime around there, it was already starting to become pretty apparent to people, well, the universe can't be eternal in that case. (laughs) And then comes a a guy named um, Albert Einstein, who comes up with a lot of great stuff that we like to quote and nobody really understands, (laughs) uh, such as the general theory of relativity, E equals mc squared. Light is a constant, time is relative, energy and matter are interchangeable. And all that to say that the universe is expanding. And this was one of the predictions of Einstein's uh, theories. Einstein is an amazing guy that uh, didn't actually practice any science. Everything he did was in his head. And he's able to predict a lot of these things that were proven, some of them even after his death. Um, But he predicted uh, an expanding universe. So again, if the universe is expanding, then it's not stable. And it must have come from an initial state. If you, if you trace it back in time, it must have come from an initial state of being smaller. Um, and then Hubble. I don't know his first name. I should have written it down. What's his first name? Oh, somebody said something. Okay. Um, Hubble is, some, is famous for the Hubble Telescope. He's a famous um, uh, astrophysicist. Um, and as he was looking out at the stars, he was able to figure out, because all light has, all elements as they're burning have their own uh, light frequency, right? Which is why when you're, if I want to get into another personal anecdote, one of the cool jobs I had when I was a teenager was working at a, at a, um, at a laboratory and finding out how much gold was in the rocks that the gold mine down the street was, was taking out. And one of the ways that we would do this is we would crush the rocks fine. We would br- we would melt them in a furnace to extract the metal from the um, the nonmetals, And then we would uh, combine all the metals with silver. Then we would burn the silver off with um, hydrogen sulfide or hydrochloric acid, depending. And no, the hydrochloric acid was for the gold, sorry. Um, so you'd melt it in solutions. And then if it was a really small amount, if it was enough, then you would do a certain process where you would end up with a little flake of gold. You'd weigh the gold and... and extrapolate how much it was, but if it was a really tiny amount you'd put it in a little test tube and you put it up to this uh, million dollar machine that would suck it up and burn it in front of a little screen and based on the color of that liquid it could tell you precisely to the zillionth of a zillionth of a whatever how much gold was in that sample. So this was for the exploration like way off somewhere where they're hoping to find just a trace of gold. So everything burns it has a certain frequency of light um, on the spectrum that it burns at. And, and as Hubble is looking at these stars, it was cool because he could, he could figure out what the star was made out of. Mm-hmm. Precisely. He knew exactly what things were in there that were burning. By, by you know, like you use a, use a prism and you can see, you know, the bands of light. But there was a problem. The starlight was too red. He figured out what was in them. And because he was so smart, he said, yes, I know what's in them, but they're too red. And so, this is what's known as the redshift. Now, does anybody know what the redshift is?
1: Well, A little concept, but not very much. <laughs> as, as things move away, then the light that's coming at you is going to be affected. You're observing it, it's going to be
0: affected by the fact that it's moving. Yeah. It's moving away, it's red, and I think if it's moving to you, it's blue or something like that. I'm not sure what color it is when it's coming towards you. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. But we can illustrate this by um, what's known as the Doppler effect that we actually observe in yeah. our daily lives. <laughs> listen to that again. Close your eyes and just listen to this for a second. What did you just hear? Something that's coming towards you and then going away. Now, what do, you, what do you notice between the sound coming towards you and the sound going away? The pitch is slightly different, isn't it? We hear this all the time as we drive down the road as a car passes us. The reason that the sound is higher pitched when it's coming towards us is because it's being crunched together. Because sounds move, sound waves move relatively slowly compared to light. And so as the person is coming towards us, the the speed at which they're coming, especially if they're coming fast, actually compresses the sound as it's coming towards us, because the point of the sound is moving. And so it's higher pitched, because when when sound waves get closer together, they get higher pitched. And then, it goes past us, and the opposite thing happens. And now it's lower pitched, because the, the sound is moving away from us. So a similar sort of thing was happening as he was looking at stars, And he, Hubble, was able to conclude that the stars are all flying away from us at tremendous speed. They must be going awful fast for us to be able to pick this up and notice it. And so what he was able to uh, verify was Einstein's theory that the universe was expanding. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people, when they hear, and so this led to the theory, which was originally pejoratively named the Big Bang by Sir somebody or other. Um, the, the person Edwin Hubble. Edwin Hubble, thank you the person that named the Big Bang did not like the Big Bang in fact it was as many names in history it was meant as a pejorative term do you really think that everything just kind of went a Big Bang? and the name stuck and uh, ironically the theory that he you know, spent a lot of time trying to disprove he ended up coining the term for it um, But the idea of a Big Bang is not that there was like a big empty room, and then all of a sudden in the middle of the room there was an explosion, which is how we think of a Big Bang. The idea is that there was nothing, not a vacuum, but nothing, and then all of space, time, energy, and matter came into being. So, on this model, and as contemporary physicists talk about this, space itself is something. So in between us there's air, right? And we think about there's air between us, but there's also space. And space itself, whatever space is, is expanding. And at one point there was no space, or at at one point all of space was squished down Mm -hmm. to, uh, I think they say about the size of a marble or or a bouncy ball. Um, So space came into being, time came into being. And energy and matter came into being. So time, they have been able to verify, Einstein's theory, that time is affected by gravity and by momentum. So the faster you're going, the slower time goes, I believe. And the more gravity you have, the slower it goes as well. I might have that backwards, but it's affected by by gravity. It's affected by speed, which is crazy. Um, Unfortunately, you can only go forward. You can't go back, as far as we know. Otherwise, it would be really cool to think about Time travel and stuff like that, but um, the the realistic science fiction stories are all about somebody going off in a rocket ship, coming back, being young, and you know human history has progressed a hundred years or whatever, because you can't go back; you can just go forward. But you might go forward at a different speed because time is relative. So, um, all this to say, okay, so no, I'm not there yet. Flip the page. Um, Nobody likes the Big Bang. You might be surprised by that. But um, atheistic, naturalistic scientists do not like the Big Bang. In fact, I made this little comic for us because um, it's kind of like this. So the Christians are all up here in our churches. The Big Bang is a danger to our beliefs. We must resist it. And the scientists, (laughs) atheistic, naturalists are sitting there thinking, The Big Bang is a danger to my beliefs. I need to disprove it. And the Big Bang is out there on the corner saying, nobody loves me. (laughs) This is what I do when I have spare time at home. Um, But the reality is as much as, I mean, Christians have been putting so much pressure on the question of evolution for the last hundred years, right? Um, But as we've been focused on this, this issue of the Big Bang has come up. And Christians haven't really been putting a lot of pressure on it. We haven't really known about it, actually. We haven't known about its implications. But
1: it hasn't been around that long. Like, it's not old. Like
0: Well, for I mean, how much water has gone under the bridge in the last 80 years, it's old. But you're right. Yeah, it's about 80 years, years old. Is, yeah. 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 But evolution is only, a, I mean, Darwin, when did Darwin die?
1: 18 something. Yeah. Something. Might be 120 years. It, like the technology at some point to evolve we'll to be able to... Yeah to really say, okay, the Big Bang is a th- like more than just the theory, you know, like yeah. so to have a scientific. So it could be like 300 years old, No, you know? mm-hmm. but, but it does carry a lot.
0: The of ancient value. equivalent is the Jewish yeah. conception of creation out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's tons of theories um, trying to disprove the Big Bang or if the Big Bang exists, uh, to, to say there was some natural cause of the Big Bang. Um, and this is where I'm going to read from my book, wherever I put it. Uh, and I'm going to admit my limitations as not an astrophysicist or even somebody who has really prepared myself, who has really like studied tons, as, as William Lane Craig has done. But there are tons of theories such as... Um, The Bouncing Universe Theory, and you've probably seen this in uh, science fiction, that uh, the universe, yes, there was a big bang, it all expands, and then after a while it'll all collapse back into itself, there'll be a black hole or something, and then it'll re-expand out again. So the problem with this is that it's affected by entropy, and that um, every time that it expands, not all of it is going to get back into the box. And that there's going to be a bigger and bigger and bigger bounce or there's going to be less and less material left over or something like that. Um, so it's been proven that this cosmic accordion sort of idea, it, it doesn't work in, in the big picture. Um, why, should,
1: why should everything not get back
0: into the box? I don't know. <laughs> okay. okay, I'm just curious. I'll <laughs> just be honest and admit that. Okay. Um, it might not be an issue of not everything getting back into the box as much as it's just entropy taking place. Like, because when, when the Big Bang happens, you have a, a, large, a low entropy state where you have tons of energy right. available. So then it goes boom, and then it all sucks back in together, and then it goes boom again, there's going to be less energy available. So the primary energy, I believe, is hydrogen, because it's the simplest atom. And so when there's a bunch of hydrogen, well, you can make water, you can make, you know, carbon-based life forms, and, and you can actually compress that in a star and create other, um, other elements. But when it's all been converted away from hydrogen, you have, you know, rocks. which You can't do a whole lot with rocks. Um, I think. <laughs> um, so I'm just, and there's other theories... Um, one of the major theories that you hear a lot about is the Hartle-Hawking model. Uh, Do you guys know who Stephen Hawking is? It's kind of modern-day Einstein guy that is in a wheelchair and stuff like that. Um, And so he proposed this in a book called The Theory of Everything. Um, There's two main critiques of this. First of all, and so he says, look, as you go back, because ultimately the, the Big Bang is about going back, you see the universe compressing, And so you go back in time and you say, at some point, you know, and mathematically they do this, it must have compressed down to a ball. And he says, well, using my theory, as you go back in time, you get to a certain point, you get looped around, you come back. I'm getting confused expressions, which is exactly what I thought when I saw this. Why does it matter if we get looped back? We're talking about whether or not it began. (laughs) Um, And so just to me, in my very non-sophistic way, non-sophisticated way I listened to this and I thought this doesn't really solve anything Uh, and lo and behold um, this is one of the things that's come out as a critique of this although he's very famous and and people still talk about this a lot it doesn't avoid an absolute beginning to the universe maybe the universe is round instead of flat it doesn't really matter there's still a beginning and as he's talked about his theory more that he has started mentioning that there is a, a beginning uh, he talks about it like uh, the beginning is like the South Pole. You walk towards the South Pole and pretty soon you start walking north again. Um, you walk south and then you start walking north again. But it doesn't matter. That's just a perspective. That, that's our perspective. If we were going back in a time machine, maybe we'd get looped back or something. That doesn't matter. We still have a beginning. And the other big critique of it is that he's using uh, dubious mathematical methods. Um, apparently there's equations such as minus... Uh, or the square root of minus one. So you can't do square roots in negative numbers, but these are called imaginary numbers. And if you're really smart, you can do math with imaginary numbers. But that's, again, similar to infinity. That works on paper, but you need to translate back into the real world. And he doesn't translate his numbers back into the real world. He leaves them in imaginary numbers, um, which is a critique that I don't understand. Uh, But that's what smart people say about the Hartle Hawking uh, model. Okay, I'm going to read, so there are tons and tons and tons of theories trying to disprove the Big Bang, Um, but so far they have all failed, and cosmologists will, will admit freely that they have all failed. Uh, and William Lane Craig says, In a sense, the history of 20th century cosmology can be seen as a series of one failed attempt after another to avoid the absolute beginning predicted by the standard Big Bang model. Unfortunately, the impression arises in the midst of laymen, like us, that the field of cosmology is in constant turnover with no lasting results. What the layman doesn't understand is that this parade of failed theories only serves to confirm the prediction that the standard model of the universe um, to con- the prediction of the standard model that the universe began to exist. That prediction has now stood for over 80 years through a period of enormous advances in observational astronomy and creative theoretical work in astrophysics. Um, Indeed, something of a watershed appears to have been reached in 2003 when three leading scientists, Alvin Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin, We're able to prove that any universe that has, on average, been expanding throughout its history cannot be infinite in the past, but must have had a past space-time boundary. So what they're saying is, there's all these theories. They've all been tried. There's new theories coming up all the time. There's string theory. There's string theory. There's um, the multiverse theory. There's all these ideas. Uh, So far, they have all failed, which really serves to... um, to bolster our confidence in the Big Bang. That it very likely did happen that way because people have been trying very hard. People don't like the Big Bang. Nobody likes the Big Bang. So it's, the fact that people have been trying so hard to disprove it and they're not able to really um, shows, uh, is good evidence for it. And that uh, these three scientists uh, have come together with a theory that any universe that is expanding must have had a beginning. And they are able to demonstrate this mathematically. And so, yeah, and a final proof that uh, I came upon just two days ago, and I haven't totally researched it out, but I've heard other people say it, I heard students in class say it, and I was like, really? And then I heard a serious scientist say it, is that Hugh Ross, who is, an astro- is a Christian astrophysicist, we're going to hear more about him soon, Um, He says, when we look far enough away, we are seeing the effects of the cosmic creation event. When we look far enough away, we're actually seeing the Big Bang. Well, why would this make sense, first of all? Why is it that as you look further away, you can see further back in time?
1: Yeah. Travels, so we only see it so much later after it actually was created, right? So, say a new star up here, which does happen in our galaxy, we, by the time we only, we really see it, depending on where it is, it's actually dying by the time we see yeah. it. So yeah. I think that's what it's referring yeah, to. That like, is. if you look far enough, then somewhere, like, if the universe is just expanding and it's continually, like, from a starting point, it just keeps going, the light, needs to be somewhere that came from that, like, call it Big Bang, call it whatever, right? From that creation point, it has to be somewhere in there.
0: Yeah, so uh, the current prediction is that, or the current science says the universe is about 14 billion years old. And there's stars that they have have seen that are 14 billion uh, light years away. So when they, or there's points in space that are 14 billion light years away. So as they look far enough with these amazing telescopes that they have now, they can see what happened at the beginning of the universe. And they can see the states as all the helium, or all sorry, all the hydrogen was there, and and that coalesced into stars, certain kind of stars, and then those created other elements and they blew up and created other sorts of stars that blew up. They can see this as they they progressively look further and further back in time, which provides tremendous proof that the Big Bang actually happened. Um, How close can we get to the Big Bang? We can get within a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second. It's not an inference. It's an actual observation of what God did in the beginning. So there is a lot of discussion about the first trillionth of a second. Because they can't see the first trillionth of a second. And so there's all this discussion about what happened the first trillionth of a second. Um, But the rest of it we can directly observe through cosmology, through astrophysics, which is why everybody wants to talk about astrophysics right now. Nobody wants to talk about philosophy or biology. I mean, come on. You can actually see the Big Bang through a telescope. I mean, how cool is that? Um, And while we're on this, this will be a bit of a primer for next week. Uh, Hugh Ross continues in the same interview to say we are at the only time and place in the universe where we can actually directly observe the history of the universe and the cosmic creation event. If we were too close to a star, if we were at a different point, we wouldn't be able to see everything. And this is where we get our most compelling evidence for God. We are put in a certain place where we can see the whole history of the universe from the first trillionth of a second through our telescopes. It's It's astounding. Um, So all that brings us back to the Kalam cosmological argument. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. We've said this is self-evident. Everybody believes this, basically. The universe began to exist. They have been trying for 80 years to disprove the Big Bang. So far, it's been unsuccessful. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe had a cause, has a cause. Um, The thing that I'm skipping over here is uh, the multiverse. The reason I'm skipping over it is because we're going to talk about that a lot next week. So the big theory that people will talk about, which creates all this wonderful uh, space for science fiction, Mm -hmm. is that our universe isn't the only one. There are, there's an infinity of universes out there. We don't know where they came from, we don't know where they're going, but they're just out there. And our universe is one of many universes that popped into being uncaused out of nothing, or out of the multiverse, whatever is causing the multiverse. So we'll talk about that next week. And I see that our timekeeper has come to lay down the law um, because I asked him to make sure that I would stay on on time today so we actually have time (laughs) for questions. Um, So let me wrap up in about three minutes here. If... I'm going to close this. If the universe came into existence, what could cause a universe... Let's start a list. There's a list here of, of six things on there. What, what sort of a thing could cause the universe? Let's pretend that we're not coming at this from a Christian perspective. We could try to not to come. From. What could cause a universe to come into being? Based on what we've just seen about uh, the Big Bang and Einsteinian a- uh, general relativity and such. What would something need? What would a cause need? It needs to be powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If it's a first cause, an unmoved mover, have to be creative. Be creative? Yeah? Mm. By creative, what do you mean?
1: Well, it has to make matter out of nothing. (laughs) I mean, it has to be.
0: One word. So, intelligent? Intelligent. So, we have powerful, intelligent,
1: smart. No, same thing. It's a synonym.
0: (laughs) A powerful, intelligent. If
1: you're going to create a universe, if you're intelligent, you have a reason for doing it.
0: Yeah, he has reasons. reason. So, so we talked just briefly about the number three, or abstract concepts. They don't make decisions. They don't change. Right. They're static. They're unchanging. What is able to be eternal? This is one, one thing that we need to have. It needs to be eternal to be an uncaused right. cause. Something needs to be eternal but able to change. So matter, if it's just matter, if it changes, it would have changed a long time ago. If it's stable, it'll never change. But a personal being has a mind and they're able to make a decision to change. So this is how we get a personal God. Or this is one evidence that perhaps the first cause is personal. Because God was sitting there for eternity, He's timeless. Christians have always believed this, pretty much. God is outside of our time-space continuum, and he makes a decision. I'm going to start the universe, and he causes it. So God is, um, this is the difficult stuff coming out of the Big Bang and and Einstein. It's not surprising that you didn't think of it, because we're not used to thinking in these categories. But The first cause must be timeless. He must be spaceless. He must be immaterial. Timeless, spaceless, immaterial. Otherwise, he's part of what he created, which is illogical. Which is, you know, he circular. He needs to be eternal, timeless. Uh, sorry, timeless, materialless, uh, spaceless, powerful, personal, and intelligent. Do you get all those? No. Page Timeless
1: as, and eternal being the same
0: thing. Yes. Sorry. Did I say those are two different things? Yeah. I don't have a list in front of me, so I'm kind of going off the top of my head, and I'm switching the order sometimes.
1: Timeless,
0: space, spaceless, materialist, spaceless, spaceless, powerful, material is, powerful and personal, personal and, intelligent. and intelligent. And I'm not sure if I'm missing some. We'll we'll clean that up in the Q and A. Um, but this is what everybody thinks of, what everybody means when they say God. So basically, what the Big Bang is doing is it's saying there must be a cause. It must be timeless, spaceless, powerful, intelligent, personal. This is God. And there's bubble theory, there's other theories proposed, but none of them come close to the explanatory power of just saying God did it. As the Jews have said for thousands of years, as Christians and, and Muslims have been saying for thousands of years, God is the best explanation for the Big Bang. And the Big Bang, conversely, is the best evidence we have today that God caused the universe to come into being. Science today is predicting, or is, is providing very strong evidence for um, belief in God.